1: Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Cutthroat According to dictionary entries, it's someone so ruthless they would cut the throat of another. A murderer, a person of a vicious nature. And believe me, in the world of piracy, there were plenty of cutthroats. Sure, pirates lived on the fringes of the societal boundaries. Many stole without conscience, justified murder, and weren't exactly the nicest people in the world. But to most of them, there were rules and behavioral expectations even among pirates. Edward Lowe, however, didn't subscribe to any of that. If a fraction of the stories about his cruelty are true, then it's a small wonder his crew didn't hang him. His meanness and depravity, according to the tales at least, could shame the devil. Lowe was born sometime in the 1690s in Westminster, London. As a teen, he found work as a sailor on a ship heading to Boston in the New World. There he secured a job at a rigging house. Accounts say that Lowe married in 1714. Tragedy struck when his son died in infancy, and his wife died from complications during the birth of their second child, a daughter. Lowe then lost his job and spiraled into a manic bout of depression. He returned to the sea, abandoning whatever kindness and solace he possessed, along with his baby daughter. During the ship's voyage, Lowe ended up in a brawl with the captain. Some of the crew said Lowe insisted on more breaks, while others claimed that he had grown tired of manual labor altogether. When life aboard the ship did not improve to his liking, Lowe convinced a handful of the crew to attempt a mutiny. He killed a crewman while trying to shoot the captain, the coup failed, and Lowe and his collaborators fled in a rowboat. The group joined forces with another pirate, George Lother. While in Honduras, the crew attacked the Greyhound. Lother and Lowe ordered their crew to beat the men aboard the merchant ship violently. Afterward, they joyfully set the Greyhound on fire. With additional raids came upgrades to their ships. Lother took a vessel of his own, christening it the Ranger. Any ship the men didn't take for their fleet was set ablaze simply for having New Englanders on board. But things weren't perfect in Paradise. Lother and Lowe fought constantly and finally parted ways in 1722. Lowe sailed for Block Island. He flew various flags designed to instill a sense of false security in his victims. His other ships helped corral the unsuspecting vessel. If the captain refused to surrender, Lowe opened fire on the ship. Not that there was anything out of the ordinary about that. No, it was Lowe's cruelty that made him stand out. This was a man who was amused by the thought of a human being sizzling in flames. And so, one time he ordered his men to tie one ship's cook to the mast, and then set the whole vessel ablaze. He strung up friars, jerking them from their feet until they died. He cut another man to pieces for pitying the victims. Word of Lowe's rampages, murder, and the removal and roasting of body parts reached the Boston Papers. He had earned a reputation as the most barbaric pirate to sail the Caribbean. He was a cutthroat. In the end, though, his deeds proved too much, even for his own crew. After Lowe killed his quartermaster, His men marooned him, and no one ever saw him again. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Pirates. Pirates, the rogues of the sea with reputations for giving no quarter, meaning to grant no mercy. The sight of a pirate ship instilled fear in many sailors, and for good reason. Codes and rules regarding the pirates' crew's treatment did not extend to those aboard targeted ships. A rare few, like Steed Bonnet, had the reputation of being kinder than most. He wasn't known as the gentleman pirate for nothing. Others, though, like Blackbeard, struck fear in all who crossed their paths, yet treated their crewmen well. But some pirate captains treated their crew poorly or worse than their intended victims. John Phillips had taken to pirate life aboard the Good Fortune with gusto. In April of 1722, he and the other crewmates were busily working on a frigate to add to their fleet when a British man-of-war captained by Sir John Flowers approached. Phillips and the others ran into the woods to hide. Flowers captured most of the pirates, although Phillips and a handful of others remained undetected. With most of the crew gone, they returned to England to take the king's pardon. While visiting family, though, Phillips heard that authorities imprisoned a few anyway, and he quickly hopped on a ship heading to Newfoundland. He deserted that ship when it arrived on an island off Newfoundland's coast and convinced others to join him. Intent on returning to piracy, the group stole a schooner from Boston Harbor and named it the Revenge. With Phillips as captain, the pirates raided ships along the coast, growing their numbers with each attack. While some went willingly, others, like John Fillmore, great-grandfather of U.S. President Millard Fillmore, did not. For the crew, leaving was not an option. While some captains had would-be deserters marooned, Phillips was deadly serious about keeping his crew. He killed two men who tried to escape, violating the agreed-upon rules of punishment. Phillips continued to raid ships and take on the crew as his own. By now, much of the crew aboard there were against their will, and by April 18, 1724, they'd had enough. Fillmore and three more took action. While repairing the ship, one of the men grabbed an axe-like weapon and killed Phillips. Before long, the rest of the crew joined the fray, defeating the pirates. They steered the ship to Boston, where they handed over the pirates and Phillips' head to the authorities. About as happy an ending as we can expect for their story. While most captains treated their crew fairly, others went too far, even for the most ruthless legends of pirate lore. Like many pirates, there's not a lot of information about Charles Vane's early life, although there are some assertions. Notably, he was likely born in London around 1680, and his surname suggests French ancestry. As a child and teen, Vane most likely witnessed a pirate hanging in public. Public hangings gathered quite a crowd back then, and entire families would make their way to the gallows to watch. Of course, that's assuming that he grew up in England. At some point, we do know that he found his way to Port Royal. There, he met privateer Henry Jennings and joined his crew. Vane discovered that they were both well-educated, which was the exception rather than the norm among sailors. Vane looked up to his mentor. Jennings was a devout patriot and wealthy landowner with a couple of island estates. If you remember, it was Jennings who was sent by Jamaica's governor, Lord Archibald Hamilton, to retrieve treasure from a fleet of wrecked Spanish ships off Florida's coast in 1715. And while the crew recovered treasure, they also attacked the Spanish camps and made off with a hefty bounty. When Hamilton lost his power in Jamaica, though, Jennings' unwillingness to give up raids made him a pirate. And to complicate matters further, the authorities in England had tied the governor, and Jennings, and Vane to a conspiracy to fund an army to overthrow King George I. But Jennings hadn't started out intending to become a pirate. The king would soon offer him and others a way out, much to their relief. Pirates in the Caribbean crossed paths regularly, and many knew each other from their privateering days. Vane took note of Jennings' dislike of Benjamin Hornigold, and following his lead, also looked down on the man. Hornigold was beneath them due to his lack of formal education and his origins in a much lower class. Vane despised Hornigold as much as his mentor, and like Jennings, he clashed with pirates and privateers alike. In fact, Vane spent much of his time in Nassau, drinking, fighting, and harassing the residents. And the more his brethren talked of taking the pardon, the more he saw the offer as an act of war on the Pirate Republic. And Charles Vane. Was ready for a fight. Unlike Jennings, Vane had no such loyalty to England, the Stuart line of heirs, or King George I. His loyalties were to piracy and himself. Vane took over those under Jennings' command who refused to sign the pardon. He continued to cause trouble in Nassau, putting himself in Britain's crosshairs. While making his displeasure well heard, Vane also knew that it was just a matter of time before someone came looking for him. Ambitious and young, British Captain Vincent Pierce set out to capture Vane. With the help of a few pirates, he found the rebel pirate aboard the sloop called the Lark. Pierce's own ship, the Phoenix, greatly outmatched the Lark, leaving Vane no choice but to surrender. Pierce returned to Nassau with the pirates. Instead of jailing them, though, authorities thought releasing Vane and his crew might be a gesture of good faith to the rest of the pirate community still considering a pardon. Vane and his crew immediately returned to piracy, though, collecting 40 of the most cutthroat pirates on the island, including Jack Rackham. As he sailed out of port, Vane passed Pierce's ship. The pirates hailed him, waving and laughing, as they ventured back out to sea. By spring, Vane and his men had attacked 12 ships. Some of their targets fought back. Others did not. Either way, they were treated with absolute cruelty. Vane and his men bound one sailor to the bowsprit and threatened to shoot him. The Word of Vane's brutality and acts of violence spread far and wide. And as his reputation grew, so too did his ego. In mid-April of 1718, Vane spotted the sloop William and Mary near Rum Cay and gave chase. Captain Edward North surrendered without a fight, Despite this, Vane's men savagely beat North's crew. After that, Vane randomly selected one of North's men's and had his hands and feet bound and tied the sailor to the topside. One pirate rammed the end of a loaded musket into his mouth. Another pirate placed the ends of matches in the sailor's eyelids. Vane threatened to light them if the sailor did not tell him where the crew hit the valuables. But the William and Mary had nothing of real value on board. So Vane took what cargo they had anyway and then also took the black sailors on board for enslavement aboard the Lark. Vane captured another ship, the Diamond, and viciously beat their crew as well. After taking whatever valuables they found, he and his crew committed their final acts of cruelty. The pirates put a noose around a sailor's neck and repeatedly hoisted him up and down until he lost consciousness. Then they set the Diamond ablaze. Later, they celebrated into the night, drinking and cursing. King George I. The raids continued in the same manner. Vane promised their victims' quarter, then unleashed his men to beat and torture anyone on board. The violence caused tensions among other pirates who relied on their victims' easy surrender as part of a promise to give them quarter. Vane, however, genuinely seemed to delight in each torture and saved his most violent acts of terror for ships originating from Bermuda. For Vane, These acts were in retaliation for the governor arresting a pirate. There was one calendar month where Vane and his pirates raided a dozen ships, terrorizing the crew each time. Survivors gave accounts of Vane's cruelty and delight in delivering the most brutal assaults. A few pirates in Nassau admitted that the atrocities that Vane and his crew committed were dark, even by their own standards. In Bermuda, mariner Nathaniel Catling, a survivor of the ill-fated Diamond, testified before Governor Bennett. He'd been slashed with a cutlass, strung up and left for dead. But miraculously, he had somehow survived. The sight of Vane's ship flying the black flag alongside a Union Jack struck fear and terror into merchant captains and crew. Trade in the Caribbean suffered, nearly coming to a halt. By now, Pierce had left Nassau, but Vane had another problem. Woods Rogers. The new governor had larger ships and more firepower. Undeterred, when Vane returned in April, he doubled down on his efforts, recruiting even more men. And then their spree of violence continued. Vane captured a 200-ton French vessel he took for his new flagship by mid-June. He christened the ship the Ranger and promoted Jack Rackham as his quartermaster. Later, Rackham would go on to captain the ship himself. In July of 1718, Woods Rogers and his landing party arrived in Nassau. The early arrival took Vane and his crew by surprise. Watching his brethren, including former mentor Henry Jennings, sign the letter of pardon was bad enough. But when many of them flew the British flag atop the forts and celebrated, Vane flew into a rage. The community split into two pieces, those who took the pardon and those who refused it. Jennings and Hornigold, although still enemies, both took the pardon. Defiant, Vane led a band of men determined to remain free from Britain's control and stormed the fort, replacing the Union Jack with a pirate flag. Still furious, Vane fired upon the HMS Rose when the ship entered the port. Captain Thomas Whitney pulled alongside the ranger and confronted the pirate. Vane handed the captain a letter of refusal to take the pardon and shouted that he would see Rogers burned from the harbor. Now, Charles Vane's bravado was one thing, but managing to get out of the harbor safely was quite another. The HMS Rose had not arrived alone. The HMS Milford, Shark, Willing Mine, Buck, Samuel, and Alicia had blocked his escape. Altogether, the British fleet carried 131 guns, 100 soldiers, and 130 colonists, making the deployment the largest ever since the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. It goes without saying, Vane was vastly outnumbered. For hours, he considered his options. I can imagine his fellow pirates betting on Vane's next move. The odds seemed evenly split between surrender followed by capture, or a short battle followed by going to Davy Jones' locker in a blaze of glory. At two o'clock in the morning, the sound of an explosion pulled residents and pirates from their beds. Vane had set a ship full of gunpowder and ammo on fire, and sailed it directly at the HMS Rose and HMS Shark. Both British ships were anchored when the sight of the flaming ship alerted a guard. Captains and crew scrambled to pull anchor and maneuver out of harm's way. The pirates abandoned the fiery vessel and made their way to another of Vane's ships. The stolen sloop exploded rather spectacularly, barely missing the two naval ships. With the crew aboard the Rose and Shark preoccupied, Vane and his small but fast sloop sailed out of the harbor before anyone else pulled anchor to give chase. Vane laughed and fired one last shot as he sailed out to sea. Humiliated and angry, Woods Rogers vowed to catch Vane, and he knew just who to turn to to help. And as we've learned, that was his nemesis, Benjamin Hornigold. Meanwhile, Vane set out to gather forces. If he was to stand a chance at ridding the Pirate Republic of British rule, he needed a formidable fleet. So he set sail for North Carolina in search of the most powerful remaining pirate of all, Blackbeard. Edward Teach had left Nassau and took over the port of Charleston to get medicine for his ailing men. Afterward, he met with North Carolina's governor to accept the pardon. Vane met back up with Blackbeard on Ocracoke Island. The two men talked, although some say they partied for nearly a week. In the end, Blackbeard wished Vane all the best of luck, but he remained determined to take the pardon and retire an attempt we now know didn't work out so well, thanks to Virginia's lieutenant governor. Undaunted, Vane continued his merciless raids, although his men became increasingly worried. Their captain was less than predictable. He had a temper, and their raids and brutality had placed them as a high priority on the capture list. One of Vane's captains even betrayed him. After raiding a ship in Charleston, he set off with a cargo, intent on turning himself in and taking the pardon, Yet it wouldn't be the loss of valuables, a ship, or the captain that did Vane in. Jack Rackham called for a vote to oust Vane, and they overwhelmingly agreed. His abuse and violence had been too much, even for pirates. They set him and a handful of supporters adrift in a small boat. Then they voted Calico Jack Rackham as their new captain and returned to Nassau to take the king's pardon. Temporarily, of course. Charles Vane never treated his crew well. Then again, he did cheat them on raids and had been less than civil, often punishing them for the smallest of transgressions. Known for cruelty to men on the ships they plundered, Vane also had a reputation for brutality with his own crew. In Nassau, rumors floated that he kneel-hauled a few men who displeased him. Part of the problem was that Vane dealt out punishments that were far more severe than required by the crime or the agreed-upon rules of discipline and the way he treated the sailors aboard the ships they raided built distrust in his men. It's no wonder that before voting him out, the crew had begun plotting revenge. Luckily for him, Rackham's call for a vote ended this time on the ship more amicably. Vane and a few of his supporters were sent adrift in a hunting trip in November of 1718. Vane realized the large merchant vessel they'd been tracking was a French warship and stopped the attack. That's when Quartermaster Jack Rackham called for a vote to replace him. Surprisingly, Vane's career didn't end there, though. He and his handful of men began to raid ships and rebuild a fleet. By February of 1719, Vane commanded five ships. They set sail for the Bay Islands of Honduras when Vane met a force stronger and meaner than even him. A hurricane. The storm tore through the ships, smashing them and scattering men into the sea, Vane and one other pirate survived, finding shelter on a nearby uninhabited island that pirates used for marooning crewmates. The two hunted turtles and other wildlife, and then waited for passing ships. Captain Holford spotted the men and stopped to help. He had once been a pirate himself under Vane and recognized the man immediately. Holford ordered the crew to take Vane's companion, but leave the notorious pirate behind, promising to return in a month He would personally escort Vane to Jamaica and see him hanged if Vane survived. Sometime later, another ship arrived. This time, Vane pretended to be a marooned sailor. The captain took him on board and even provided work. Unfortunately for Vane, though, the ship connected with Holford's, and a crewman pointed out the infamous pirate. Holford had Vane placed in shackles and took him to Port Royal, where he made good on his promise. In March of 1721, Vane found himself before the court. Survivors testified against him, relaying the horrors they'd seen and suffered, and Captain Pierce returned to testify as well. Vane was hanged at Gallows Point on March 29 of 1721. Officials displayed his corpse in a cage at the harbor entrance for all to see, and of course, for the birds to slowly devour. The legends tell us that all pirates were violent cutthroats, but hopefully you've seen the error in that notion demonstrated throughout this season. Still, there were, of course, exceptions to the rule, and Charles Vane was one of the worst. But there were others. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, my crewmate, Allie Steed, will tell you all about another pirate cutthroat.
0: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
4: Put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop blinds.com right now and save 40% site wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: You're ready for a comeback, and with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
2: The records are not exact. Still, it's believed that Jean de Vignois was born between 1630 and 1635 in the French coastal town of Sable d'Eulenaie. However, most people never called him by his birth name. Instead, he went by Francois and used the surname Leulenaie as a nod to his birthplace. Records put him in the Caribbean in the 1650s, where he worked as an indentured servant for about 10 years. After paying his debt, he ventured to Hispaniola, where he joined hunters the locals called buccaneers due to their preference for smoking meat on grills. The Spanish tried to rid Hispaniola of the buccaneers to no avail. In retaliation, the hunters attacked the Spanish before retreating into dense forests. When the hunters set out to sea for a life of piracy, Lanay gladly joined them. The buccaneers focused mainly on Spanish vessels, not just because of their vast wealth, but partly in retaliation for slaughtering other buccaneers. Lanay and the others held little back in their attacks and they were brutal to the Spanish. Tortuga's French governor had once been a buccaneer himself, and Le Olenay must have impressed him because he offered Francois and a few of his former brethren a deal they couldn't pass up. He would supply a ship in exchange for continued raids on the Spanish, all government-sanctioned, of course, and all Le Olenay and the others had to do was share a portion of the bounty. France and Spain were hereditary enemies, and in 1667 and 68, the two were at war again. The governor selected a crew that hated the Spanish and were almost as bloodthirsty as Le Olené. Delighted with his new position, the buccaneer eagerly threw himself into his work. Before long, his reputation grew as the most vicious and deviant buccaneer in the Caribbean, which was a pretty impressive claim given his brethren's animosity towards the Spanish. Le Olené sailed on ships owned by private parties for the first two or three hunts. The raids were wildly successful, bringing in a hefty fortune and a heftier body count. With all the newfound wealth, the buccaneer captain bought his own ship. There's no record of how he treated his crew, but his victims, they were another story. Lolini took no prisoners and he gave no quarter. It's said he killed an entire crew aboard a Spanish ship. He personally took the role of executioner, beheading 90 men. Other times, he chose to have the Spanish thrown overboard to drown or set them on fire. And more grotesquely, it's said he had a fondness for removing men's hearts and eating them. His brutality and depravity knew no bounds, which ultimately became his downfall. Without quarter, the Spanish had no choice but to fight to stay alive. Torture and horrific death motivated the Spanish to fight harder, more fiercely, and dirtier than they ever had before. At best, they died in battle. At worst, well... We already know what happened. Still, all that fighting cost Lo men. In 1667, his ship sank off the Yucatan coast. Fortunately for Loolene and his crew, most of them survived and swam to shore. Unfortunately, Yucatan's population consisted of indigenous tribes and the Spaniards that were trying to conquer them. The Spanish found them first. The two groups engaged in an intense battle. Outnumbered and at a disadvantage, Le knew he had to act quickly if he wanted to survive. He covered himself in the blood of his fallen men, then rolled in sand to resemble a corpse. Finally, he hid beneath a few bodies and lay still and quiet until the Spanish stopped looking for survivors and left. When Le felt safe enough to emerge, he took the clothing of one of the dead Spanish men. While trying to find a safe place to hide for the night, he stumbled across the Spanish soldier's campsite, The fighters were celebrating, toasting each other for killing the hated buccaneers. Lulene quietly left. Survival meant making it to neutral territory. Luckily, he found assistance from some enslaved indigenous people, and the group stole a canoe and made it safely to French-ruled Tortuga. Determined to destroy the Spaniards for killing his men, Lulene assembled another crew and set a course for Cuba. Havana's governor sent a warship to confront the buccaneers. A head-to-head battle would be too dangerous, so Le decided on a surprise attack. The buccaneers won the battle, intentionally leaving one sole survivor to deliver a message. They would give the Spaniards no quarter. During their next cruise in Venezuela, Le had a fleet of 600 men and eight ships. Again, they prevailed, killing the Spanish and taking enormous riches, gold, gems, gunpowder, and other valuables. Bent on a reign of terror, they sailed to Maricaibo, At the sight of Loholene's ships, the 4,000 residents panicked. Men, women, and children packed up valuables and fled into the woods. When Loholene stormed the town, he found it empty and relatively void of treasure. Ultimately, he and his crew found and killed 20 people before taking 260,000 pieces of eight and heading towards their next port. Gibraltar put up a fight, managing to kill 70 buccaneers but it wouldn't be enough. And Leulene and his men spent four weeks raiding and brutalizing the town. In the end, they killed 200 people and took another 150 hostage for a hefty ransom. Then they returned to Maracaibo, whose residents had just begun to creep out of the woods only to find the buccaneers had returned. They looted and pillaged them before returning to Tortuga with another 30,000 pieces of eight Leolene and the crew met disaster once more on the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua. During a losing battle with the Spanish, Leolene and a few of his men fled on a makeshift raft. The indigenous tribe they met this time was not as friendly and captured the buccaneers. One of Leolene's men managed to escape and eventually returned to safety. He reported that the tribe had been cannibals, that they'd cut Leolene to bits and ate him.
3: Pirates was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Alexandra Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto, with research by Alexandra Steed and Sam Alberty. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit grimandmild.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.
2: This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually